Hello everyone, welcome to Knox Bedtime Stories. I'm your friend Joey, here with another episode to help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep. It is 11pm here, and I hope you're all doing well, especially during this pandemic. We're pretty much shut down here again in Philadelphia, and... Being bipolar, the only time I really leave the house is mostly to go to the gym and they're closed. I know a lot of you are going through the same things, whether it's insomnia, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, or just the awful people on social media. Hang in there, I actually posted two stories tonight to give you a little extra to take your minds off of things. I have a unique story for you all tonight, and as always, a short good news story to help pick up your spirits with some good news. The unique story tonight is by Edgar Allan Poe, but it's not about horror or anything creepy, it's very different from his other stories, and seems to be rather obscure. You can find next to nothing about it on the internet but it was included in the Raven edition of his books. It's called The Landscape Garden. What is important is the emphasis on the pursuit of happiness under certain unusual immaterial conditions, the landscape interventions, and the discussion of how a man can affect the landscape design throughout scales even with a minimalist contribution kind of like a butterfly effect, and he talks about his four conditions to make a person happy. The main character is Mr. Allison, and he's wealthy, good-looking, has a beautiful wife, and is hung like an elephant's trunk to the point that women feed it peanuts for foreplay. Alright, so I made that last part up, but you get the point. This guy is very well off. This story is very wordy, so you're either going to find it fascinating, or it's going to put you to sleep, so it's kind of a win-win. If you find the podcast helps you, please leave me a kind review on Apple iTunes. It helps others find it by moving it up in the algorithm, or you can support me on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. On December 1st, I'm going to start putting up some Patreon-only stories, as the podcast is expensive to run and very time-consuming. So, if you're looking for more than one story a week, that's a good way to get it, and it helps me a lot. I would like to thank Hutch503, HollyFun1, Holly Deckard, and Nabrew, and Christy Misty 22 for your recent reviews. They were very kind and keep me going. You can get any information you would like on the podcast at knoxbedtimestories.com. And I'll be adding Discord to the site over the next few weeks to expand our community. Tonight's short good news story is very good news. Scientists at the University of Alberta just cured diabetes in mice opening the floodgates for research on adapting this cure for humans. The potential cure is a landmark moment in preventing the growing prevalence of diabetes in our society, a disease which according to the WHO burdens 422 million people worldwide. 
The process involves a stem cell application that reverse engineers insulin islets out of blood cells. This cured mice of the disease. We've been taking blood samples from patients with diabetes, winding those cells from the blood back in time so that they can be changed, and then we're moving them forward in time so that we can turn them into cells we want explains the procedure's pioneer, Dr. James Shapiro, to CTV, who famously developed the Edmonton Protocol, another diabetes treatment in the 1990s. The Edmonton Protocol involved using islet cells from organ transplants, but required powerful anti-rejection medication. The new stem cell process uses the patient's own cells so rejection is impossible. Like any good scientist, Shapiro won't move beyond the phrase, more research is needed, but hopes he can receive support from governments if he can prove the science is the same in humans. There needs to be preliminary data, and ideally a handful of patients, that would demonstrate to the world that this is possible and that it's safe and effective, said Shapiro. So, that's awesome news, right? Okay, let's get to tonight's story, The Landscape Garden by Edgar Allan Poe. Set the sleep-inducing music and this fireplace. If you're not already laying down, please do so in whatever way is comfortable. And let's begin. The garden like a lady fair was cut, that lay as if she slumbered in delight, and to the open skies her eyes did shut. The azure fields of heavens were assembled right, and a large round set with flowers of light, the flowers de loose and the round sparks of dew, that hung upon the azure leaves did show, like twinkling stars that sparkle in the evening blue. Giles Fletcher, no more remarkable man ever lived than my friend, the young Ellison. He was remarkable in the entire and continuous profusion of good gifts ever lavished upon him by fortune. From his cradle to his grave, a gale of the blandest prosperity bore him along. Nor do I use the word prosperity in its mere worldly or external sense. I mean it as synonymous with happiness. The person of whom I speak seemed born for the purpose of foreshadowing the wild doctrines of Turgot, Price, Priestley, and Condorcet, of exemplifying by individual instance what has been deemed the mere chimera of the perfectionists. In the brief existence of Ellison, I fancy that I have seen refuted the dogma that in man's physical and spiritual nature lies some hidden principle, the antagonist of bliss. An intimate and anxious examination of his career has taught me to understand that, in general, from the violation of a few laws of humanity, arises the wretchedness of mankind, that as a species, we have in our possession the as yet unwrought element of content, and that even now, in the present blindness and darkness of all idea, on the great question of the social condition, 
It is not impossible that man, the individual, under certain unusual and highly fortuitous conditions, may be happy. With opinions such as these was my young friend fully imbued, and thus is it especially worthy of observation that the uninterrupted enjoyment which distinguished his life was in great part the result of preconcert. It is indeed evident that with less of the instinctive philosophy which, now and then, stands so well in the stead of experience, Mr. Ellison would have found himself precipitated by the very extraordinary successes of his life into the common vortex of unhappiness which yawns for those of preeminent endowments. But it is by no means my present object to pen an essay on happiness. The ideas of my friend may be summed up in a few words. He admitted but four unvarying laws, or rather elementary principles of bliss. That which he considered chief was strange to say. The simple and purely physical one of free exercise in the open air. The health, he said, attainable by other means than this is scarcely worth the name. He pointed to the tillers of the earth, the only people who, as a class, are proverbially more happy than others. And then he instanced the high ecstasies of the fox hunter. His second principle was the love of woman. His third was the contempt of ambition. His fourth was an object of unceasing pursuit. And he held that, other things being equal, the extent of happiness was proportioned to the spirituality of this object. I have said that Ellison was remarkable in the continuous profusion of good gifts lavished upon him by fortune. In personal grace and beauty, he exceeded all men. His intellect was that order to which the attainment of knowledge is less a labor than a necessity and an intuition. His family was one of the most illustrious of the empire. His bride was the loveliest and most devoted of women. His possessions had been always ample, but upon the attainment of his one and twentieth year, it was discovered that one of those extraordinary freaks of fate had been played in his behalf, which startle the whole social world amid which they occur, and seldom fail radically to alter the entire moral constitution of those who are their objects. It appears that about 100 years prior to Mr. Ellison's attainment of his majority, there had died in a remote province one Mr. Seabright Ellison. This gentleman had amassed a princely fortune, and having no very immediate connections, conceived the whim of suffering his wealth to accumulate for a century after his decease. Minutely and sagaciously directing the various modes of investment, he bequeathed the aggregate amount to the nearest of blood, bearing the name Ellison, who should be alive at the end of the hundred years. Many futile attempts had been made to set aside this singular bequest. Their ex post facto character 
rendered them abortive. But the attention of a jealous government was aroused, and a decree finally obtained forbidding all similar accumulations. Many futile attempts had been made to set aside this singular bequest. Their ex post facto character rendered them abortive. But the attention of jealous government was aroused, and a decree finally obtained forbidding all similar accumulations. This act did not prevent young Ellison, upon his 21st birthday, from entering into possession as the heir of his ancestor Seabright, of a fortune of $450 million. When it had become definitely known that such was the enormous wealth inherited, there were of course many speculations as to the mode of its disposal. The gigantic magnitude and the immediately available nature of the sum dazzled and bewildered all who thought upon the topic. The possessor of any appreciable amount of money might have been imagined to perform any one of a thousand things. With riches merely surpassing those of any citizen, it might have been easy to suppose him engaging to supreme excess in the fashionable extravagances of his time, or busying himself with political intrigues, or aiming at ministerial power, or purchasing increase of nobility, or devising gorgeous architectural piles, or collecting large specimens of virtue, or playing the munificent patron of letters and art, or endowing and bestowing his name upon extensive institutions of charity. But for the inconceivable wealth in the actual possession of the young heir, these objects and all ordinary objects were felt to be inadequate. Recourse was had to figures, and figures but sufficed to confound. It was seen that even at 3%, the annual income of the inheritance amounted to no less than thirteen millions and five hundred thousand dollars, which was one million and one hundred and twenty-five thousand per month, or thirty-six thousand nine hundred and eighty-six per day, or one thousand five hundred and forty-one per hour, or six and twenty dollars for every minute that flew. Thus, the usual track of supposition was thoroughly broken up. Men knew not what to imagine. There were some who even conceived that Mr. Ellison would divest himself forwith of at least two-thirds of his fortune as of utterly superfluous opulence, enriching whole troops of his relatives by division of his superabundance. I was not surprised, however, to perceive that he had long made up his mind upon a topic which had occasioned so much of discussion to his friends. Nor was I greatly astonished at the nature of his decision. In the widest and noblest sense, he was a poet. He comprehended, moreover, the true character, the august aims, the supreme majesty and dignity of the poetic sentiment. The proper gratification of the sentiment he instinctively felt to lie in the creation of novel forms of beauty. 
some peculiarities either in his early education or in the nature of his intellect had tinged with what is termed materialism the whole cast of his ethical speculations and it was this bias perhaps which imperceptibly led him to perceive that the most advantageous if not the sole legitimate field for the exercise of the poetic sentiment was to found in the creation of novel moods of purely physical loveliness. Thus it happened that he became neither musician nor poet, if we use this latter term in its everyday acceptation. Or it might have been that he became neither the one nor the other, in pursuance of an idea of which I have already mentioned. The idea that, in the contempt of ambition, lay one of the essential principles of happiness on earth. Is it not indeed possible that while a high order of genius is necessarily ambitious, the highest is invariably above that which is termed ambition? And may it not thus happen that many far greater than Milton have contentedly remained mute and inglorious? I believe the world has never yet seen and that, unless through some series of accidents goading the noblest order of mind into distasteful exertion, the world will never behold that full extent of triumphant execution in the richer productions of art of which the humane nature is absolutely capable. Mr. Ellison became neither musician nor poet, although no man lived more profoundly enamored both of music and the muse. Under other circumstances than those which invested him, it is not impossible that he would have become a painter. The field of sculpture, although in its nature rigidly poetical, was too limited in its extent and its consequences to have occupied at any time much of his attention. And I have now mentioned all the provinces in which even the most liberal understanding of the poetic sentiment has declared his sentiment capable of expatiating. I mean the most liberal public or recognized conception of the idea involved in the phrase poetic sentiment. But Mr. Ellison imagined that the richest and altogether the most natural and most suitable province had been blindly neglected. No definition had spoken of the landscape gardener as of the poet, yet my friend could not fail to perceive that the creation of the landscape garden offered to the true muse the most magnificent of opportunities. Here was indeed the fairest field for the display of intention or imagination in the endless combining of forms of novel beauty the elements which should enter into combination being at all times, and by a vast superiority, the most glorious which the earth could afford. In the multiform of the tree, and in the multicolor of the flower, he recognized the most direct and the most energetic efforts of nature at physical loveliness. And in the direction of concentration of this effort, or, still more properly, its adaptation to the eyes which were to behold it upon earth, 
He perceived that he should be employing the best means, laboring to the greatest advantage in the fulfillment of his destiny as poet. Its adaptation to the eyes, which were to behold it upon the earth. In his explanation of this phaseology, Mr. Ellison did much towards solving what has always seemed to me an enigma. I mean, the fact, which none but the ignorant dispute, that no such combination of scenery exists in nature as the painter of genius has in his power to produce. No such paradises are to be found in reality as have glowed upon the canvas of Claude. In the most enchanting of natural landscapes, there will always be found a defect or an excess, many excesses and effects. While the component parts may exceed individually the highest skill of the artist, the arrangement of the parts will always be susceptible of improvement. In short, no position can be attained from which an artistical eye looking steadily will not find matter of offense in what is technically termed the composition of natural landscape. And yet, how unintelligible this is. In all the matters we are justly instructed to regard nature as supreme. With her details we shrink from competition. Who shall presume to imitate the colors of the tulip? or to improve the proportions of the lily of the valley. The criticism which says the sculpture or the portraiture that nature is to be exalted rather than imitated is an error. No pictorial or sculptural combination of points of human loveliness do more than approach the living and breathing human beauty as it gladdens our daily path. Byron, who often erred, erred not in saying, I've seen more living beauty ripe and real, than all the nonsense of their stone ideal. In landscape alone is the principle of the critic true, and having felt its truth here, it is but the headlong spirit of generalization which has induced him to pronounce it true throughout all the domains of art. Having, I say, felt its truth here, for the feeling is no affection or chimera. The mathematics afford no more absolute demonstrations than the sentiment of his art yields to the artist. He not only believes, but positively knows that such and such apparently arbitrary arrangements of matter or form constitute and alone constitute the true beauty yet his reasons have not yet been matured into expression. It remains for a more profound analysis than the world has yet seen, fully to investigate and express them. Nevertheless, is he confirmed to his instinctive opinions by the concurrence of all his compeers? Let a combination be defective. Let an emendation be wrought in its mere arrangement of form. Let this emendation be submitted to every artist in the world. By each will its necessity be admitted. And even far more than this, in remedy of the defective composition, each insulated member of the fraternity 
will suggest the identical emendation. I repeat that in landscape arrangements, or collections alone, in the physical nature susceptible of exaltation, and that therefore, her susceptibility of improvement at this one point was a mystery in which, hitherto, I had been unable to solve. It was Mr. Ellison who first suggested the idea that what we regarded as improvement or exaltation of the natural beauty was really such as respected only the mortal or human point of view, that each exaltation or disturbance of the primitive scenery might possibly affect a blemish in the picture. If we could suppose this picture viewed at large from some remote point in the heavens, it is easily understood, says Mr. Allison, that might improve a closely scrutinized detail might at the same time injure a general and more distantly observed effect. He spoke upon this topic with warmth, regarding not so much his immediate or obvious importance, which is little, as the character of the conclusions to which it might lead, or of the collateral propositions which it might serve to corroborate or sustain. There might be a class of beings, human once, but now to humanity invisible, for whose scrutiny and for whose refined appreciation of the beautiful, more especially than for our own, had been set in order by God the great landscape garden of the whole earth. In the course of our discussion, my young friend took occasion to quote some passages from a writer who has been supposed to have well treated this theme. There are properly, he writes, but two styles of landscape gardening, the natural and the artificial. One seeks to recall the original beauty of the country by adapting its means to the surrounding scenery, cultivating trees in harmony with the hills or plain of the neighboring land, detecting and bringing into practice those nice relations of size, proportion, and color which hid from the common observer are revealed everywhere to the experienced student of nature hid from the common observer are revealed everywhere to the experienced student of nature the result of the natural style of gardening is seen rather in the absence of all defects and incongruities in the prevalence of a beautiful harmony and order than in the creation of any special wonders or miracles. The artificial style has as many varieties as there are different tastes to gratify. It has a certain general relation to the various styles of building. There are the stately avenues and retirements of Versailles, Italian terraces in various mixed old English style which bears some relation to the domestic Gothic or English Elizabethan architecture. Whatever may be said against the abuses of the artificial landscape gardening, a mixture of pure art in a garden scene adds to its great beauty. This is partly pleasing to the eye, by the show of order and design, and partly moral. A terrace with an old moss-covered balustrade calls up at once to the eye 
the fair forms that have passed there in the other days. The slightest exhibitionist of art is an evidence of care and human interest. From what I have already observed, said Mr. Allison, you will understand that I reject the idea here expressed of recalling the original beauty of the country. The original beauty is never so great as that which may be introduced. Of course, much depends upon the selection of a spot with capabilities. What is said in respect to the detecting and bringing into practice those nice relations of size, proportion, and color is a mere vagueness of speech, which may mean much or little or nothing, and which guides in no degree. The true result of the natural style of gardening is seen rather in the absence of all defects and incongruities than in the creation of any special wonders or miracles. Is a proposition better suited to the groveling apprehension of the herd than to the fervid dreams of the man of genius? The merit suggested is, at best, negative and appertains to the hobbling criticism which, in letters, would elevate Addison into apothesis. In truth, while that merit which consists in the mere avoiding demerit appeals directly to the understanding and can thus be foreshadowed in rule, the loftier merit, which breathes in flames in invention or creation, can be apprehended solely in its results. Rule applies but to the excellences of avoidance, to the virtues which deny or refrain. Beyond these, the critical art can but suggest. We may be instructed to build an odyssey, but it is in vain that we are told how to conceive a tempest, an inferno, a Prometheus bound, a nightingale, such as that of Keats, or the sensitive plant of Shelley. But the means done, the wonder accomplished, and the capacity for apprehension becomes universal. The sophists of the negative school, who through inability to create, have scoffed at creation, are now found the loudest in applause. What in its chrysalis condition of principle, affronted their demurred reason never fails in its maturity of accomplishment, to extort admiration from their instinct of the beautiful or the sublime. Our author's observations on the artificial style of gardening, continued Mr. Allison, are less objectionable. A mixture of pure art in a garden scene adds to it a great beauty. This is just, and the reference to the sense of human interest is equally so. I repeat that the principle here expressed is incontrovertible, but there may be something even beyond it. There may be an object in full keeping with the principle suggested, an object unattainable by the means ordinarily in possession of mankind, yet which, if attained, would lend a charm to the landscape garden immeasurably, surpassing that which a merely human interest could bestow. The true poet possessed of very unusual pecuniary resources might possibly while retaining the necessary idea of art or interest or culture, 
so imbue his designs at once with extent and novelty of beauty as to convey the sentiment of spiritual interference. It will be seen that, in bringing about such result, he secures all the advantages of interest or design, while relieving his work of all the harshness and technicality of art. In the most rugged of wildernesses, in the most savage of the scenes of pure nature, there is apparent the art of a creator, yet in this art apparent only to reflection, in no respect has in the obvious force of a feeling. Now, if we imagine this sense of the almighty design to be harmonized in a measurable degree, if we suppose a landscape whose combined strangeness, vastness, definitiveness, and magnificence shall aspire the idea of culture or care or superintendence on the part of the intelligences superior yet akin to humanity, then the sentiment of interest is preserved, while the art is made to assume the air of an intermediate or secondary nature, a nature which is not God, nor an emanation of God, but which still is nature in the sense that it is the handiwork of the angels that hover between man and God. It was in devoting his gigantic wealth to the practical embodiment of a vision such as this, in the free exercise in the open air, which resulted from personal direction of his plans, in the continuous and unceasing object which these plans afford, in the contempt of ambition which it enabled him more to feel than to affect, and lastly, it was in the companionship and sympathy of a devoted wife that Ellison thought to find and found an exemption from the ordinary cares of humanity with a far greater amount of positive happiness than ever glowed in the rapt day dreams of de Stal. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and found it helpful, please leave me a kind review on Apple Podcasts. It improves the show's rankings and helps others find it. You can also help by supporting the podcast via Patreon at KnoxBedtimeStories.com and clicking on the Patreon link or Patreon.com forward slash KnoxBedtimeStories. I wish you all a wonderful night's sleep and a happy, peaceful life. Good night.